With all due respect to Miss Turner, there is an answer. What does love have to do with it? Got to do with it? Everything. Love is not an emotion, secondhand or not. The answer is everything. Probably largely we get confused because we don't understand what love is. Jesus said the most, two most important commandments are about love. To love God and to love our neighbor as ourselves. John, in this section of the letter, gives the third proof of somebody who truly has been saved by the power of Jesus Christ. That is so much of what 1 John is about. What does a Christian actually look like? As opposed to somebody who claims, I am in Christ, that I am walking in the light. John writes this in, in uh, Glenn, Glenn Barker's commentary on 1 John. He says, John gives three legs of a stool that the person sits on who is in Christ. One is doctrine. Do they believe Jesus is who he says he is? Do they believe he truly is fully God and fully man? Or do they try to separate the two? Is there bad doctrine? Sometimes when talking about false teachers, people will say, well, look at their fruit. And of course, I'll say, well, you don't really know them, so you don't know what their fruit is. But the principal fruit of any teacher is what they teach. Bad doctrine will not result in good living. Bad doctrine will not result in good living. It may take a while, but all that is done in secret will be found out in the light. The second, last week, moral. Are they walking as Jesus walked? Jesus said if we love him, we would keep his commandments. And today, John reminds them of the command Jesus gave to love. That is the third leg of the stool. Stool. Love. The love of God can be seen in the way we love each other. This last one we make a mess of. Why? Because we find God's definition of love to be too much. How are you supposed to judge someone when you can't live up to the standard? That is why we are always constantly in need of God's love and God's power so that we can love as he loved if you've ever read 1 John, you might be some, somewhat surprised. Maybe you've read it, but maybe you haven't taken time like we have in this sermon series to go line by line, verse by verse. I think somebody maybe listening to this might think, well, John's kind of judgy. I mean, people just come to church. No, I mean, you're just supposed to take it for granted that they truly are believers. But John is saying, no, no, I don't think they are. No, they're not walking in the light. They're walking in darkness. They're not truly in Christ. They are, in fact, he calls them liars. As he moves through these three proofs of the genuineness of believers, a person might think, yeah, um, seems kind of judgy. And that is because for hundreds of years now, churches have operated like businesses instead of churches. With shareholders and and and. Um, and, and uh, patrons instead of parishioners. Because of this, they try to preach a gospel that people will like, that people will buy into. When Christ says, if you're going to come to me, you need to die. That doesn't sell as many books. That doesn't, that doesn't, get, that doesn't get many people in seats. People say, they look at this in First John, they might seem, think that that is very unloving. There is no way of reading 1 John and not coming across a divine skepticism of those who say they are believers when they don't believe Jesus is fully God and fully man. If they don't live lives 
in submission to Jesus Christ or if they hate other believers. It's because for too long we have let the world come into the church instead of the church going into the world. The most destructive way the world has come into the church is when the church adopts the world's definition for words. This is the most fundamental way the world gets into the church. Lately, it's been with the word justice. Many pastors, many pastors I respect. Sorry, since the thing's not working, I'm going to beat down. Oh, is it working now? See, I can't tell from up there, so hopefully everyone's eardrums are okay now. I'll tone it down a bit. Um, the word justice, for instance, and many pastors, many pastors I respect, they'll even start with some scripture. And the scripture will talk about God's justice. They will then abandon the scripture to talk about the world's idea of justice. There's no word that is synonymous in both the way the Lord defines it and the way the world defines it. Because our, our, our initial desire is to dumb down God's word. is to make it something we can do. Because if it's something we can't do, we have to be dependent on him. But it's something that we can actually do. Then we can judge other people because they're not doing it. But if we ourselves cannot do it, we cannot judge them on it. In fact, we have to tell them, come to the power source that I know, the Holy Spirit, and then you can live the life that God wants you to live. Here's another way. This is the first way. It is infecting the word love. Everybody wants to define love the way they want to define love. So many people, the way they define love is not the way Christ would define love and would not include Jesus Christ. That is the principal, most destructive way the world has infected the church. It pretends the world's love is a fake love. It masquerades itself as selfless, but it's truly selfish. It pretends to be unconditional until you break the unwritten conditions. It seems all-forgiving until you actually sin. In short, it's a fake love, a tainted love. In this section of John's first letter, John will break down the, this third leg of the stool. For the rest of the letter, it will go into the specifics of each leg of this stool. But this leg right here is the leg of love. And in this, we have the command of love. We have loving the church and the darkness of hate. Let's talk about the command of love. Verses 7 and 8. Beloved, I am writing to you no new command, but an old command um, that you have had from the beginning. The old command is the word that you have heard. Kind of a tongue twister, isn't it? It's kind of like, what now? <laughs> it's a new command, but it's an old command, but it's kind of new because of this. In this last section, John tells them that if they love Jesus, they would walk the way he walked, obey his commands. And he reminds them in this part of the, of the command of Christ to love one another. As he moves forward into this third proof of the genuineness of a believer, he reminds them of one of Jesus' prime commands to love one another. It's a roundabout way of doing it too, kind of a weird way to put it. It's not a new command, except it kind of is. It's new now because John is assuming that his readers will read what he has written and that they will believe it, and they are now coming out of darkness. You are going to walk in the light, so walk in love. He says it's no new command, that they, that they had it from the beginning. This is why you should read the Bible in some kind of chronological order, because writers will reference other writers. John is referencing the gospel he wrote of Jesus Christ. In John, 
chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, Jesus says this, A new command I give you. Sounds a lot like what John just said there, right? No new command, but it is a new command. Jesus says, A new command I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, all people will know you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Man, the standard's a little high, isn't it? We should love each other as Christ loved us. You can't do that on your own. Maybe if Jesus just said, just love each other, we'd be like, great. We can define love any way we want to define love. Maybe it's just never having, picking a fight or, or correcting anybody or whatever, and I can just sit at home and do whatever. But that is not how Christ defines love. He says, love as I have loved you. Can you see how this is no new command, but at the same time it is now? We like to dumb down the commands, um, the commands of Jesus into something more, something that we could actually do. If all Jesus said was love one another, maybe we could do that as long as we got to define what love was and we could debate what that looked like. But Jesus says, as I have loved you. How are we supposed to do this? We can't. That is why we need the Holy Spirit. That is why we have direct access to the throne of grace. This is something we take for granted. This last Wednesday was Yom Kippur. On Sunday school, we talked about the feast. We talked about how the temple is destroyed. There's no temple. But traditionally, with Yom Kippur, was the one day of the entire year somebody got to go into the Holy of Holies. It was the high priest. And he would go as the representative of the people in their sin to atone for their sin. The temple has been destroyed, and now you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And at any point in time, you can go into the Holy of Holies, the place that only, only the most holy one could go into. Jesus warned the people in his day. He, he didn't warn them. He prophesied that not one stone would be left on, each, on another of the temple. This last week, you know, there's so much that doesn't get made, put into my sermon. I did a very deep dive into the siege of Jerusalem. And I, it almost brought tears to my eyes because of all of these unclean Gentiles who flooded into the temple, ransacked it, destroyed it, and spread the blood of the Jewish people all inside. Destroyed, desecrated completely the temple itself. And it was sad, but then I thought, nothing was happening in that temple because Jesus Christ is the one sacrifice for all. And he still is. This is the fantastic thing. So he says that... Because, because we know him, if we are to know, if people are to know us as his disciples, we love one another. We have this power inside of us. We have this treasure in jars of clay. Love for others comes from the love of Christ that is in you. John is saying that this is no new command, but it's new for them now because they are going from darkness into light. Have you found this in your life? I bet you have. That as you grow in the Lord, there are commands in the Scripture or there are stories in the Scripture that mean more to you now. Those of you who are unmarried, you'll read in Ephesians, Husband, love your wife as Christ loved the church. And wives, respect your husbands. And you might think, okay, gotcha. Then you get married and you realize you did not understand that at all. All of a sudden you have to live it. Wait, love, love her as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. I don't always feel like that. Sometimes I want to be selfish. All the guys in the, um, in the congregations are like, just 
eye contact right now. I'm not amen in that faster. Uh, <laughs> and for women, respect your husbands? What about if they're being disrespectful? That's a conditional one, isn't it? It's as conditional as husbands love your wives. He's telling them, this command's going to mean more to you now because you're going from darkness into light. Verse 8, at the same time, it is no new command that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. 1 John 3.14, there's this great debate on 1 John concerning who he's actually writing to and who is this command for. Um, Is it for everybody or is it only for believers? Well, I don't think you can exclude everybody from this. I think there's a specific context to this for believers, but you can't exclude this because of the teachings of Jesus Christ himself. That we are not only to love those around us, our neighbors, but even our enemies and the outcast. Specific context, though, I believe is other believers. Love in the church. This command right here seems kind of roundabout, but he's getting at something specific. Those in the church love others who are in the church. Jesus says for us to love even our enemies and that the outsider is our neighbor, but specifically John does say who he's talking about. So does Jesus. Jesus said, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Then John in 1 John 3.14 will say, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. That's right. First, primarily, and my second point right here, is this command is to love those in the actual church, the body of believers. Verse 9, 9 and 10, loving the church. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. But whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. The brother right here are those who are in the church primarily, first. We'll see this repeated throughout the Gospels in different writers. Let us do good to all, but especially those who belong to the family of Christ. That's from Galatians chapter 6. Often it becomes very in vogue to hate on the church. Now, I'm not referring to small c church, like we are faith church. There are individual churches. There are churches, there's fellowships, and so, and, and so on and so forth. All valid, what the Bible is talking about, church. But then there's also the capital C church, when Jesus said, I will build my church. That is believers everywhere. Believers from all different kinds of whatever, as long as they believe in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, and they are evidencing the fruit of the Spirit in their life, they are walking in light, they are part of the church. It is criticism towards Christ's bride, the church, I want to address right here, because it harms the person's relationship with Jesus Christ when you talk so badly about his bride. Try this with a friend. Every time you see this friend, run down their spouse. Talk about how terrible they are, how much they get on your nerves. You'll notice that even if you're still friends, the guy, doesn't, the guy or gal doesn't want to talk to you anymore because you're talking about the person they love. It's also hypocritical because if you are in Christ, you are in the church. And if you're talking about the church, you're not talking about them, you're talking about yourself. I find often when people are very focused on talking about all the problems of the church they always see themselves as outside of it. That's, that's so prideful. Garbage. Oh, you're the one good person out of everybody. I bet that makes a person feel... I mean, let me tell you something. I'm talking about all this because I've been there, 
and I've done it. And Christ had to, Christ had to convict me of this, of always acting like I'm one of the very few who actually get it and who's actually right. No, I'm part of the wider church. And Christ died for his church. He's purifying his church. Even right now, does the church have problems? Absolutely. Can we talk about those problems? Absolutely. Can we call out heretics, false teachers, false prophets? Absolutely. But let us not forget, we are called to love one another. Love the brethren. We know that we've been brought from death to life because we love the family of believers. I remember when I was first in ministry as a youth pastor, shortly before 2010, and there was this movement going on. Maybe some of you remember this, the emergent church movement or the emerging church movement. And they never emerged. They just fizzled out, and many of them have no influence anymore. But they did a lot of damage in that time. It's a lot like the deconstructing church movement that's happening currently, just causing people to doubt. Did God really say talking the language of the serpent. Well, one of these fellows, a guy named Tony Campolo, in a documentary on the emerging church, he had made this quote, and he said it was from St. Augustine. I'm going to paraphrase it because I find it to be offensive and not appropriate for polite conversation. It is that the, this was the quote he supposedly said was from St. Augustine, was that the church is a prostitute, but she's also a mother. I remember at the time thinking, that doesn't sound like St. Augustine. Now, I haven't read all of, all of Augustine's works and everything like that, so maybe I missed something, so I checked it out with other people who have. There's no such quote. He made it up. Or maybe he heard it from somebody else, and he thought, hey, if I say Augustine said it, then people will really, you know, think much of it. You know, I don't care if he did or not. You don't say that about Christ's bride. We are not talking about Israel during the Old Testament when God said that about the nation, but not the remnant. The church is the remnant in the New Testament. You don't get to talk about that way of the church. You look at the end of Revelation. The son and the bride say, come. I remember the time thinking, Augustine could have never said that, and It seems like I was probably right. There's no origin for the quote. It makes sense that Augustine would not have said this because he had a genuine faith. That may be true of certain denominations. It may be true of certain physical churches. But it's not true of Christ's bride that he is purifying. When it comes to loving others in the body of Christ, in loving others, period, I think the, the key is forgiveness. Forgive as the Lord has forgiven us. I remember when I was in fourth grade. In fourth grade, in kindergarten, fourth grade, just those two years, I went to Catholic school. Um, Probably don't know that part of my story. I went to Catholic school, and I remember there was this nun at Catholic school. Her name was Sister Leela. Sister Leela was was wonderful. She um, she only had one arm, and she taught um, uh, typing and piano. She was so fast. You couldn't believe it. The only thing she was faster at doing was hitting your knuckles with the ruler if you didn't do something right. She was super nice, though. Anyway, um, and Sister Leela, she was leading chapel one day, and um, we're, we're in chapel, and uh, she said, all right, students, prepare yourselves. We're going to pray a dangerous prayer today. And I remember thinking at the time, I was in fourth grade, and I was thinking, a dangerous prayer? Is this like some secret, like, Vatican prayer? of like the, like the Middle Ages. 
And this is going to like call up stuff or whatever because I'm, I'm fourth grade. I have a magical way of thinking. And, um, and then she starts going into it and it's the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven. And I remember being kind of disappointed. I'm like, okay, if you grew up Catholic, you know two prayers by heart and you always will. It is the Lord's Prayer, or you might call it the Our Father, and then um, Hail Mary. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Anyway, so... Like the pre, like priests, when you go to confession, like when they're in doubt, they tell you pray, pray the Lord's prayer. And so I was kind of disappointed. I was like, wait, this is pretty mundane prayer. I, I had no idea how dangerous the Lord's prayer really is. It was, it was years later, years later. And I was in my room, me and my friends, we had done something pretty bad during Halloween. And, um, I wanted to do something religious. So I knew one prayer. So I start repeating the Lord's Prayer. Now, I'd gone to youth group during this time. I'd heard the gospel, not responded to the gospel because I thought I was fine. I do religious stuff every now and again, so I'm fine. So I start praying this prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our... And I... In old school Catholic, it's trespasses. Today, it's sins. As we forgive those who trespass or sin against us. From that moment, the Holy Spirit met with me. Oftentimes, I use words with this, but there really wasn't words. There was something going on as I was praying this prayer in my spirit that was interacting with the Holy Spirit. And this is my best understanding of it, that the Holy Spirit was asking me, if I die, where do I go? And I tried, to, I tried to give excuses. Nobody knows. You can't say that to God because he knows. And I'm like, well, I haven't done anything all that bad. And God starts bringing to my mind the things I had done bad, but not from my perspective, because from my perspective, they weren't all that bad. From my perspective, it was just, if they got offended, that was their problem. But I started seeing it. I thought it was from their perspective, but it wasn't. It was from the God who loved them perspective. Because I remember there was this one thing. I grew up teased, mercilessly, bullied. And then I had my growth spurt, and then God brought to my mind a time where people were making fun of and bullying a kid, and I joined in. For so long, I thought I was seeing it from his point of view, but I was really seeing it from the father who loved his point, loved that boy's point of view. And I remember that night thinking, telling God, literally out loud, if you didn't send me to hell, you're not a good God. And it was in that moment that I felt the grace of God that while I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. Loving others in that prayer was the most dangerous prayer I've ever prayed because that night I died. And that night I was risen to new life in Christ. Loving those in the church, other believers, as in verse... um, 9.10, 9.10, who is ever in the light, hates his brother, is still in darkness, but whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. It's in forgiveness. It's in forgiveness. If you've spent any time in church, I guarantee you've been hurt. Let me, let me rephrase that. If you've spent any time on the earth, I guarantee you've been hurt by someone. It hurts especially, though, when you've been hurt by somebody in the church. Why? We'd say, because they should know better, right? They should know better. It's like in Lord of the Rings, Treebeard. You know, he hears about all the stuff Saruman is doing. He gathers together all of his tree friends, the Ents, 
And they have a big, long discussion, and they, they figure out that, you know, after a while, that the hobbits are probably not orcs. And that, yes, a lot of bad stuff is happening. A lot of uh, their friends and trees and people are going to die, but they're going to stay out of it. And then he gets to the outskirts of Isengard, and he sees everything clear-cut, and he says, a wizard should know better. When you get hurt in church, it's a lot like that, right? Like, conceptually, you're like, forgive and forget and all these things. But all of a sudden, somebody in the church hurts you knowingly and bad. And it's like, they should know better. How can you ask me to forgive such a thing? They should know better. And what about if they keep doing it? Do I still have to forgive? Yes. Yes, you do. How about a fellow believer? You can, pro- you can and you probably have been hurt by another believer. What do you do? You choose to forgive. You might say back, I can't. And you're right. That is why you are in so desperate need of the Holy Spirit's power. Because forgiveness is hard. This, this next Saturday, I'm going to be running a marathon. Running a marathon is easy compared to forgiving. It's so much easier. I can run a marathon in my natural, you know, training and everything like that. I can't forgive without the Spirit of Christ giving me power to forgive of reminding me of what I have been forgiven so I can forgive. You might think, oh, you know, Pastor, have you ever, have you ever, been, um, have you ever been offended? Have you ever been uh, sinned against in the church? All the time. Uh, not all the time, sorry. I, I have been in the past, yes. I remember one time, it, wasn't, it was kind of especially bad. Friends I knew said, you, you never talk bad about these people. I'm like, no, because Christ has forgiven me way more than they could ever hurt me. Or they could ever do to me. Organizations. People have been hurt by churches as organizations too. Sometimes boards and pastors and congregations, they get things wrong. Will you let a brood of bitterness develop? That will drive you, that will drive your relationship with God to grow cold. You know, you probably will say, maybe you're watching this now, maybe this might be three weeks after this, and you come across on Facebook, and you're seeing this, and you haven't been in church for like months. So obviously I'm not talking to you guys. You haven't been in church for months, and you're like, Jason, Pastor Jason, I've never been closer to God than when I stopped coming to church. I bet it seems like that, because Samson also thought he had the Spirit of God until he got into trouble. He didn't realize the Spirit of God had left him either until he got into trouble. Trouble comes and you realize how incredibly spiritually bankrupt you truly are. And that coming to church is a blessing, including dealing with hurts, including dealing with difficult people. This third source of hurt and and in turn forgiveness is one that makes me very sad and very angry and sick to my stomach. And that is when you are hurt by the pastor. The former superintendent of Iowa told us a story one time of a church that went through pastors like, um, trying to think of a a good analogy, um, went through pastors like, you know, TV dinners. Um, Just pastor wouldn't last a year, and they'd they'd burn out. And they, they went to this church, they talked with the church board, and they found that there was, it wasn't so much the whole church board of the church, but there was one guy who was constantly antagonistic to any pastor who would come in. So he talked with him, he confronted him with scripture, and the man got, and the man had all these reasons, and finally he just said to the superintendent's face, when I was 10, my pastor abused me. He burst into tears. 
you can see where, and that pastor sounds to me like that guy was a, was a wolf. But there was a lot of other good people that that man drove off because he was dealing with his unforgiveness. Amen. Hurting people hurt people. And this brings me to the fourth person, you. This is the truth every, very few will accept, that you hurt other people too. And you'll say to me, maybe you're hearing this right now, and you're like, not me, Pastor Jason. I've never done anything wrong to anybody. You can only say that because of one, two things. Either one, you are so painfully unself-aware, you really believe that, that you've never hurt anybody else's feelings. You've never, um, just without thinking, did something mean, or maybe thinking you were. Or two, you judge other people by their actions, and you judge yourself by your intentions. And you'll say to yourself, that was never my intention, so I don't have to worry about it. You know, Jesus said that if you were to come, before you come to the altar, if you have something against a brother or a brother has something against you, make it right first and then bring your gift. That is still true today. When you, I was going to exclude, I know we have a lot of younger teenagers in the congregation. I was going to exclude you because I know you're just kind of just getting into it. And really kind of the Holy Spirit brought me to this. Your parents are fellow believers, I'm talking to the teenagers here today. Your parents are fellow believers. When you say things like, I hate you when you're upset, you're saying that to God the Father, Son, and Daughter. Amen. You know, forgiveness, reconciliation, needs to be modeled and enacted in home and in the church. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Love as Christ has loved you. There's no more extreme example than this than the cross itself. But another example that is absolutely stirring and something that's almost beyond belief is that of Corey Ten Boone. Many of you know this story. In fact, I was going to play the video, her own words. Uh, I decided I've done that in the past, so I'll just summarize it for you today. Corey Ten Boone survived the Holocaust. Her and her family were in the Holocaust, and not all of them survived it. Her story, her family story, is in the book. The Hiding Place, which is also a movie. And Corey Ten Boone has this story about when she was going throughout Europe and talking about the forgiveness of God, and a German man comes up to her and asks her, if the, do you remember me? She wasn't sure at first, but then she remembered. He was one of the brutal, most brutal guards in the concentration camp. And he tells her, Fräulein Boone, I have come to know Jesus Christ as my Savior. And I've received his forgiveness, but I'm asking for your forgiveness. As a pastor, I would hope I'd have a courage to tell somebody in that, in that predicament, you need, you need to forgive. In my flesh, I wouldn't want to. I can't imagine the suffering and pain somebody goes through during the Holocaust and have somebody come up and say, I've been forgiven by God, will you forgive me? But I'm not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit spoke to her and told her, if you don't forgive, you have not been forgiven. And when she had made the decision, the Holy Spirit gave her the love and power to forgive. That is what God wants in his church. It is what Christ bled for, for in his church, that it would be characterized by love and forgiveness. So much to the point where people would see, hey, you see those people over there? They love each other so much they must be followers of Jesus Christ. Nobody else loves like that. Love is sacrifice. 
We are to love as Jesus loved us. If you are to give a one-word description of the love of Christ and you can't say love, I think the, true, the, the only right answer is this, sacrifice. Sacrifice. Christ gave himself up for us, Romans 5, 8, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This love is extreme. Luke 6, 32. Jesus says, If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. We talk about worship a lot in church. Worship, according to the Bible, is not singing songs. It's not having an experience. It is sacrifice. Romans 12, 1 and 2. In view of God's mercy, brothers, I urge you to, to present your bodies as living sacrifice. Loving each other, forgiving each other, is not just something good for us. It's primarily worship to God. And it's sweet worship to God. It's saying, I will let go of my hate, I'll let go of my anger, and I'll forgive this person. It's a beautiful sacrifice before God. I said before, when it comes to the commands of Christ, we like to dumb them down, and sacrifice we absolutely do as well. There's a story in the Old Testament, 2 Samuel, the light, at the end of King David's life, he messes up big and God sends a plague. And God tells him to stop the plague. He must go to this place and sacrifice. He goes to this place. It's owned by somebody else. He offers the man money and the man tells him, no, you can just have it. It's my civic duty. And King David tells him, no, I insist. I will not sacrifice to the Lord something that costs me nothing. Man, that's something in the church we need to get back to. A lot of times people are like, should I throw it in the garbage or should I give it to the church? There's a need in the church. Oh, instead of the garbage, I'll go to the church first. I say this from experience in my own life. I remember one time um, somebody needed a backpack and I, had, I was in high school and I just bought for myself, my own money, a really nice backpack and I had an old ragged one as well. I was like, great, I'll give him the old ragged one. And that's when the Holy Spirit convicted me. He's like, is this what you give? I'm like, no. <laughs> I gave him the best one. I took the other one. And I had more joy with the ratty one than I did with the new one. People will give these things to the church. In fact, we were, we were talking about the other, the other day, we were cleaning up after um, uh, last call before fall, and Mel had brought this up. Um, when we were all growing up, we all had a big red bowl and uh, we put salad in it, we put jello in it, and we also used it when we were sick. <laughs> These bowls get donated to the church all the time. <laughs> yeah, Mel, Mel had said that, and like, we're just like, my jaw was like on the ground, and I'm like, yeah, that, that, yeah that's absolutely, and I was like, I was thinking about it, I was thinking about like the clear Tupperware. You know how like if you put spaghetti in clear Tupperware, I'm going to gross everybody out, but you won't be so eager for lunch and for me to stop preaching, so that's great. Um, if you have clear Tupperware and you put spaghetti in it, you know how you can't get the spaghetti out of the Tupperware? Just because you can't see it doesn't mean it's not there. That's often what we want to sacrifice to God, right? I'll quit smoking because I don't smoke. It's harder. I'm going to choose to forgive even though that person has hurt me. There is a darkness in hate. Verse 11, but whoever hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Love is not blind, infatuation is. Love is stronger than that. Love is bigger than that. Love is longer than that. Love is wider than that. And love is higher than that. 
It's fully knowing the other, all the good and all the bad, and loving them anyway. Love comes from light and truth. Hate, however, is blind. Maybe you think hate is a strong word. I kind of thought so too. But if the Holy Spirit uses the word hate, why should we do any different? Love is not blind, but hate is. There's this man named Daryl Davis, and Daryl has a unique hobby. Daryl will go around, he finds leaders and people who are in the Ku Klux Klan. Like, they wear the, they wear the sheets, they have uh, the, you know, all the stuff going on, and he befriends them. And let me tell you, I, I forgot to mention this, Daryl Davis is an African-American man. He's a black man. And when he was younger, he was in Boy Scouts, and he was in the Boy Scout Parade, and he had, he had lived kind of a sheltered life. During this parade, he rounds this corner, and all of a sudden, people are shouting things you should not shout to a child or anybody else ever, and throwing rocks at him. He gets home, and he has bruises, and he tells his parents about it, and he tells them, he's like, I, don't, he's like, I think there was people behind us or something. I don't know why they'd be so angry. Did we do something wrong? And they had to explain to him, no, there are people who hate you just by the color of your skin. And he had told them then, he's like, how can they hate me if they don't know me? So he grows up, he becomes this um, semi-famous jazz musician, and he has that same question rolling around in his head. How can somebody hate me if they don't even know me? So he sets up a meeting with one of the leaders of the Ku Klux Klan. It's kind of a funny story. I mean, it almost ends in tragedy um, when they think that, uh, that uh, some ice melting with somebody cocking the, cocking the hammer back on a gun. And they meet, they talk. Before long, Daryl's inviting that man and his family over to his house. He's being invited over to their house. In one of their meetings, they had, they had, they had lunch, and he, the man had a present for Daryl. It was his KKK robes. He didn't need them anymore, because now that he's really seen Daryl, really seen Daryl, he can't hate him. Hate is blind, love is not. Love is in the truth. It is seen with eyes that are not natural, it is seen with the eyes of the Lord. Daryl has gotten the robes of many, many members of the KKK, and he doesn't do anything much. In fact, that wasn't his goal starting out. It was just simply trying to understand, how can you hate me if you don't know me? In church, amongst believers, I wouldn't say that we go straight to hate, but we do have a darkness that will cloud our eyes sometime when we get on our hobby horse about secondary issues and we make the other person the devil. Hate blinds, love gives sight. And we forget that we do not battle against flesh and blood, we battle against the unseen forces. We allow hate to blind us to what truly is going on. That that person too is a child, is somebody that God wants to forgive and welcome into his family. Including, including wolves and false brothers. This is something that I always have to check myself with. And when I, because I'm your shepherd, I chase away wolves. I have no problem naming names. The scriptures do. And I see the mountain of destruction. In fact, I talked about Tony Campolo today. But I have to make sure that in this, I know where my heart is at. That I don't become a hammer. Because to a hammer, everything looks like a nail. There's this story um, about... Uh, George Patton during World War I. He's commander um, of a division of tanks over in Africa. And in the morning was the battle, and one of his aides keeps hearing him muttering to himself as he's looking at the battlefield. And they, they go closer, they hear him talking, oh, how I love it, oh, how I love it. 
We have to make sure we're not getting to that. We just love the fight. We love to fight with each other. But we realize that that, that that is getting dangerously close to hate and hate blinds. Where are you going? The one walking in darkness doesn't know where they're going. John is contrasting these false teachers and false believers with the words of Jesus Christ himself. A believer loves other believers. But these men only have contempt for those who really know Jesus. Don't confuse politeness with love either. Many hateful people will be polite to your face and tear you apart when your back is turned. Make sure that doesn't include you. When you are speaking up against something or someone, where are you going with it? Man, I, I, I know there are things that are serious. We talk about the abortion debate. We are talking about lives and death. We're talking about false teaching in the church. We're talking about damnation and salvation. These are true, but what is your purpose in it? Is it simply to battle, to show that I'm greater than this person, I'm going to humiliate them, and, you know, is it like the the Conan theology, the greatest thing in life? Is to see your enemies driven before you and hear the lamentation of the women? Or is it like Christ for their salvation? That that's what it comes down to. I want to see them brought into the family of believers, saved and reconciled. How can I hate them when Christ loves me so much? How can I refuse to forgive when Christ has forgiven me so much? Worship team, you can come up at this time. In inclusion, we have that command to love. It's in the Old Testament, New Testament. It's the command of Jesus Christ. In the last section, John reminds them that that if you say that you are in fellowship with God, but you do not obey him, you are a liar. Are you loving those in the church? Now, we should have a love for everybody, absolutely, but especially those in the church. That seems to be the hardest for many. In fact, many almost seem to make a virtue out of uh, dissing the church, disrespecting the church, of hating those in the church. Are you in a blindness of hate? Are you loving? Are you loving in truth? Do you have people you need to ask God to help you forgive or to ask for forgiveness from or to love? Are you holding on to unforgiveness in the body of Jesus Christ? Do you have grudges against someone in the body of Christ and you need to make that right? Maybe you even have to go up to them and ask them for forgiveness. I'll be praying for you because that's probably one of the hardest things to do. And every now and again, Christ leads me to do that as well. It takes a lot of humility because I sure don't want to do it in the flesh. Where I've offended somebody, maybe I've even gossiped about them and I have to tell them, sorry I did this, I have no excuse. (laughs) <laughs> that, takes, that takes the power of Jesus Christ. Or to go to somebody and say, you know, when you did that, that really, that really hurt. And we're in the body of Christ. I want to see us reconciled. But I have something against you. I want to make it right. That also takes a lot of guts. It takes the power of the Holy Spirit. Have you let anger and hate blind you? Or maybe that's extreme. Maybe dislike. Maybe you like the fight. I'm reminded in this, I talked about Lord of the Rings before, there's this quote that you will not see in the movie, it is saying in Elfish, but if you don't know Elfish, you don't know it. I do not love the bright sword for its sharpness, nor the arrow for its swiftness, nor the warrior for his glory. I only love that which they defend. We are to remember in the body of Christ, even as we stand for the truth, it is, we are doing so in love to bring somebody into a right relationship with Jesus Christ. We are going to sing our final song. This is our opportunity to respond to the message. 
is an opportunity to do something dangerous. To ask the Holy Spirit, search me and find me. Am I holding on to unforgiveness? Have I forgiven those who have sinned against me? Or am I holding on to something? Am I loving as Christ loved? Those outside of the church, but especially those in the church. Am I letting anger blind me? Am I forgetting who the true enemy is? Would you please join me as we sing our final song?